that's actually one of the highlights of an American style education that's valued immensely by students around the world. When you arrive in the U.S. as a student, or if you are a, uh, are an American student, you're not straight jacketed into pursuing just the major or particular degree that you've selected, but that you're in fact encouraged to broaden your thinking by sampling from different departments and courses and subject areas. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, South Asian University, a segment where we bring on academics and experts to talk about historical or cultural topics that affect the diaspora. My guest this week is Rajika Bandari. Rajika is an expert in the field of higher education. Over her 25 years studying student mobility and international education programs, she has served as the president and CEO of the IC3 Institute, director of research and strategy for the Institute of International Education, and more recently as the head of her own advisory firm. Rajika's work and words have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, NPR, The Guardian, Times of India, and by many, many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Teachers College in Columbia University. Basically a very, very impressive person, one that I'm super excited to bring on for today's podcast. During this episode, we focus on the link between education and immigration. Rajika, talk to me about the motivation for international students to come to the U.S. and how it tends to vary between European and Asian international students. She reflected on the number of international students in the U.S., how it's fluctuated with international relations, and about the massive, massive economic impact of those students. We dive into topics like brain drain and brain circulation, which was a new word to me. Lastly, she reflected on her own journey as an international student coming to the U.S., and what it was like to put that story in her new book. Without further ado, Rajika Bandari, welcome to Brown People We Know. Rajika, so before we even dive into the topic of education and immigration and how those things are linked, I just wanted to start by talking to you about your career a, a little bit. So when you moved to the United States, you were pursuing a PhD in psychology, and today you're lecturing and working on education policy. So how did you find that path? That seems like quite a divergence. It was a divergence, but I'll also say that that's the beauty of a U.S. education and it's something I talk about in my book as well, that when I arrived in the U.S., I was very much following a more traditional path in psychology, coming straight from University of Delhi, where, you know, there were certain areas of psychology, there were certain things you would do with the subject as a career, and then that was that. But when I arrived at NC State, I would say that my thinking really began to expand, mainly because of my advisor and the professor that I was working with. And it became apparent to me that there are so many different ways to think about psychology as a subject, and there's so many different applications. So my own interests actually started evolving quite away from what one might think of as pure psychology into more areas of global education. I became very interested mainly in issues around women in education and particularly coming from the global south and coming from a country like India, these are issues that are really front and center. And so I became very interested in um, how different countries were leveraging the education of women and girls to really bring about greater social development. So yes, I started out in psychology, but I would say by the time I graduated, I was more of a broad-based social scientist, having taken classes in developmental economics, in statistics, certainly applied psychology, etc., in a way that would really help me then have a career in the space of educational research and policy and evaluation. And one of the things that happened for me, and we may, we'll probably get more into this later in the conversation, but just to mention it very quickly, 
is that I made a very deliberate choice to not remain in the ivory tower. And even though most people think of a doctorate as sort of having a more traditional academic career, I actually chose to not remain in academia after, after finishing my doctorate and really wanted to be more in the sort of quote-unquote applied world as a researcher. So I would characterize most of my career as having really straddled that space of being both a scholar and a practitioner and having worked in many different settings. Yeah, that's so interesting because when I think of a PhD, I think of a huge time and financial commitment. So I was thinking that, you know, you got this degree in psychology and then you made this jump, but really it sounds like it was a gradual process happening throughout your degree. It was, it was. And I think that it's, you know, a U.S. education offers that. That's actually one of the highlights of an American style education that's valued immensely by students around the world. When you arrive in the U.S. as a student, or if you are, a, uh, are an American student, you're not straight-jacketed into pursuing just the major or particular degree that you've selected, but that you're, in fact, encouraged to broaden your thinking by sampling from different departments and courses and subject areas. So I definitely found that to be a huge advantage. So you moved here in the 90s where information wasn't necessarily so free-flowing as it is now where like I can look up pictures of the university and, th and that type of thing super easily. Did you know all this before you came to the U.S. or what initially gave you the idea to move to the U.S. for education? So that is a really, really interesting question. For me personally, I actually came for personal reasons. I came following a relationship, but I think it's important to talk about that because that is the journey of many people where some come as very intentional foreign or international students. And I think that's certainly true of today's generation, which is, uh, as you sort of alluded to, it is so much more better informed, has so much more information. And I almost call them consumers who are very different from the students of my generation. But even so, I think people find themselves on this journey for different reasons. And one of them is that, you know, we often follow our families. We often follow relationships. For me, that's what happened, that I came following a relationship, but then, of course, became completely immersed in the life of a graduate student and particularly an international student in the U.S. And it was only many years later, after the tables were turned, and I became a professional, sort of on the outside as an objective researcher, studying the very experience I had been through, that I was really able to then reflect on how profoundly transformative that time had been, and, and not just individually as an individual and a woman, but also as a professional, as a global citizen. And so I think it takes that time of maturation and period of time to really reflect back on how impactful uh, that experience had been. When we think about the issues of immigration and education, we can start with the broad question, right? So why should we care? Why is this an important thing to talk about? It's incredibly important on a couple of different levels. The first being looking at it from the perspective of the U.S., if we are to look at just the U.S., so this is true for other countries as well. If you look at the arc of history, it's really been America's colleges and universities that in a really instrumental way have helped connect the U.S. to the rest of the world. So this is not a new phenomenon. It goes back a couple of hundred years from when European scholars had been coming to U.S. universities to gain knowledge and travel and learn. And it continued through the 20th century, the two world wars. In fact, those were pivotal moments when U.S. colleges and universities opened their doors to refugees from Europe. We're seeing the same thing happening now in this century. So universities have also been safe havens. And 
they've really been a very powerful form of soft power and influence for the US because one part of the story is the immigration story that if we look at American history over the 19th and 20th century post 1965 which is when there was the immigration and nationality act i think of 1965 that's when the doors of the us opened up again to people from around the world and that's when we saw sort of this next wave of uh, indian students who then became Im- immigrants also coming to the us and i would love to later on hear whether that was your family's journey as well but it has been the journey of many many current indian immigrants so there are the international students who've arrived who have chosen to stay on as skilled immigrants bringing their knowledge and talents to the us and you know wherever you turn and i'm sure you know this quite well in the work that you do that whether it's physicians and doctors whether it's faculty at universities it's university presidents it's the whole silicon valley phenomenon has really been driven by this group of immigrants so that's sort of one of the huge value adds the other piece is that not everyone stays many go back to their home countries as as they should and that has been critical for the us because it's those people it's that chinese student it's that indian student it's that african student who came to the us was influenced by it and decided to go back and set up a university in their home country that uh, draws upon an american liberal arts model and have really been critical as sort of being these what i call in the book unofficial ambassadors for the us so it's really again just to sort of summarize it it's this whole arc of global diplomacy it's about long standing relationships with the rest of the world and something that to be quite honest has been very damaged over the past 4 or 5 years and i think it's a time of really trying to repair some of those relationships again through education there's a lot to pick apart there but something that stood out to me is the fact that american universities have been lucrative for a very long time it sounds like and it's also interesting because when we think of immigrants and education again we're thinking china and india which today are the largest we'll call it exporters of international students to the us but it sounds like even before that there was a lot of exchange between europe and other countries as well so what are some of the differences that you see with people migrating from south asia to the us for education versus from europe or other parts of asia or other parts of the world Do you find that the stories are pretty similar or is there a lot of variety there? There is a lot of variety and you've actually touched upon a really interesting nuance because there is a tendency to assume that all international students are the same and to kind of put them into a single bucket or to think that they're a singular group. but nothing could be further from the truth and my work has shown me that and this is documented by others as well by research and anecdotally that there are significant differences in the motivations of students who are coming from i would say not even just south asia but i would broaden it to say asian countries where sort of alluding back to the phrase i used earlier there's this sense of being a savvy consumer in terms of uh, obtaining the best degree that a family's money can afford and really regarding that what i what i in the book also call a made in america degree as sort of the pinnacle of success and kind of the pathway to future careers and social and economic mobility so i think that's certainly one big driver for students from asia i would say for many students from the global south because there is an imperative and a desire and a drive to obtain a high quality education that's often not available at home so even though the countries that we're talking about like india in particular but even other countries have in recent years built up more universities created more college seats for their students when you look at the size of the student population it's just not enough so those students need a quality education and if they're not going to be able to get it at home they need to go elsewhere 
When we look at European students from, I would say, both Europe and more of the developed world, the motivation is very different because that pressing need is not always there in terms of, well, if I don't go abroad, I may not get that quality education at all. So those are sort of the stark choices which don't necessarily exist for students from, from Germany or from the Netherlands or from Australia. So I think there the motivation is really this idea of cultural exchange. We see this also in the patterns that play out. Many European students will come to the U.S. for shorter periods of time, very much within sort of that cultural exchange model. Most of them go back to their home countries and don't have the same sort of rate, high rates of conversion from education to immigration that we see amongst Asians. Super interesting to hear you say that, because as I was preparing for this episode, something that I was kind of meditating on is the fact that a lot of my international classmates, they faced so many extra barriers to get here as a student. They couldn't apply to as many companies because of visa restrictions, all sorts of extra hoops that they had to jump through simply because they wanted a U.S. education. But you've alluded to the fact that, you know, maybe they just don't have access because of numbers, because of the size of the infrastructure right now in, in some Asian countries. Maybe they didn't have access to the same quality of education, which kind of gives me an idea of why they might make that leap and come over here, right? But that also begs the question, as these other institutions rise abroad, as the internet democratizes access to education, do you think that the benefit of an American degree and the allure of an American degree is the same as it once was, especially in the context of South Asia and for people today? That's a million dollar question, but I would say that the allure is still very strong. <laughs> I will just share that when I was sending my book to the printer, one of my most difficult choices was the opening scene of the book. And I, I won't give it away, but I had to sort of predict and think about what would happen this fall, because after what we saw last year, of course, you know, higher ed systems everywhere were in crisis, especially in the US, and students couldn't come, and mobility came to an almost standstill. Even for those of us who study all of these things, it's been very difficult to look into that crystal ball and know what would happen, because there's uh, the health-related issues, there's the, you know, visa issues, etc., but this fall semester, which has just started, has actually surprised quite a few people because students are flooding back, particularly from India. And there have been stories of students just getting on airplanes in large numbers and coming over and seeing almost this realization of a pent-up demand over the past couple of years. So I think to answer your question, it's a hard question to answer, but I think that for countries that are going to see a lot of population growth in the coming years, India is certainly one of them. Africa is a region, uh, is one of them where, according to demographic projections, most of the world's future youth population is going to come either from South Asia or from Africa. I think we're going to see both things play out. I think students have more options at home. And I certainly heard this from students I was talking to last year, where many who did have offers of admission to the U.S. were rethinking their plans. And quite suddenly, when Ashoka University or another stellar institution in India had kind of been just a backup option, it suddenly became the primary option. So I think we'll see both things happen. An increasing number of students will stay home because they can or go closer to home because there are better universities available now. But a large number will continue to come to countries like the U.S. because I think there's a huge cachet and brand attached to that degree. Now, not all may choose to immigrate. And I'm sure you'll, you'll sort of agree with this, that I think Indians in particular are very brand conscious when it comes to which school you've been to or which university you've been to. So I think that Made in America brand is going to continue to carry some weight. 
Rajika, you were the VP of Research and Evaluation for the Institute of International Education for over a decade. And one of your duties during that time was to help put together the U.S. state-funded Open Doors Report, which is, for people that don't know, it's a census study of international students, essentially. So I'm curious, as you helped conduct that study, I know this may have been a few years ago, but what were some of the numbers that jumped out to you or surprised you? First off, for your listeners, I'd like to share that the report itself has a history of almost 100 years. So in that sense, it has really been a record and a documenting of how American colleges and universities have internationalized, who has come from where. And one of the really interesting things that that I observed during my time there, but also as sort of becoming a scholar of this work on, on sort of what had preceded me, is in understanding how much those student flows to the U.S. have been shaped by all sorts of factors. I mean, we talked about student demand and student motivations earlier, But those flows and who comes from where and in what numbers has really also been shaped by social forces, political forces, national policies, what governments choose to do. So, for example, given what the geopolitics are right now and how strained U.S. relations have been with uh, Iran, many people might not know that actually in uh, the 1970s, Iranians were the number one group of international students coming to the U.S. So all of this is to say that the Open Doors data is really a testament to what those ebbs and flows have been of people from different countries. India has, of course, played a very central role for quite some years, was a leading country in terms of the numbers of students coming to the U.S., but was soon overtaken by China and overtaken by China because of the strong growth in their middle class. There was the one-child policy, so families were really sort of investing in making sure that that one child had, again, sort of in what their eyes was the best education possible. Then some years ago, there was a, a huge spike in both Brazilian students and students from Saudi Arabia. Now, the Saudi Arabia example is really interesting because that was a clear example of how countries, again, see education as an instrument of diplomacy where post 9-11, there was uh, a real breakdown of relations between the US and Saudi Arabia. And there was a sense at the national leadership level that education can be a powerful instrument to try and repair some of those biases and misperceptions that exist about Saudis. So the then President George Bush and the Premier of Saudi Arabia launched the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, which was responsible for sending thousands of Saudi students to American campuses. So that's one thing that that I would um, say. Also, the, uh, the other thing I'll note is that the Open Doors data has really enabled an understanding of the economic impact. You mentioned this in passing earlier, but both the Open Doors data and other sources of information have been used by also by this other group called NAFSA to develop an analysis around what the economic impact of international students is in the U.S. And I'll say for your listeners, many of whom may not know this, that an American degree is the sixth largest service export that the U.S. has, which means that the U.S. is selling more college degrees to the rest of the world than it is things like automobiles and I believe it's medicines or some other some other products. So the financial impact is huge and it's projects like Open Doors in partnership with other organizations also that have really enabled, you know, really, really brought that evidence-based understanding of what that impact is. That is super surprising to hear and I love that statistic about the exports because I was actually doing grad school while Trump was in office. And so I saw some of those policy changes, how they affected some of my fellow students that were like, should I go back to India now? Should I stay here? Should I like what's coming next for me? I think, again, this just emphasizes the importance of tying education to immigration and this whole topic. I also loved that you 
looked at this report across time because, you know, when I looked at it, I'm looking at, okay, 1.2 international students in the U.S. in 2019. But the way that you've described it is, is a completely different story because it's not so much about numbers, but again, about international relations, about business, all these other impacts. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, really sort of documenting that very important historical relationship that I um, mentioned right at the beginning of our conversation. And it's sort of really documenting in numbers how that has played out over time. Rajika, can you describe a little more about this impact across countries? Because I'm curious about it from both the countries that people are leaving and the countries where people are coming to. And this doesn't necessarily have to do with just South Asia and the US, but two things that I often hear about are brain drain and competition for jobs. But on the other hand, you just talked about this enormous, enormous economic impact, right? So what are the different effects that this flow has? I am so glad you've brought that up because that is absolutely the other side of the coin and the other part of this equation. And again, something that I do talk about in the book, because I also, one of the strands in my book is that I talk a lot about what the struggles are, the internal struggles, not the immigration struggles. That's a whole separate issue. But what the internal struggles are for a person who is sort of poised to become an immigrant and knows that they have that option and this sense of needing to give back to your home country. And, and the reason I, I mention that is there is absolutely an issue of brain drain. And it is a reality that when you look at, so first off to back up again, when you look at the numbers and just who moves where. So like you said, 1.2 million student, international students study in the US from over 200 countries. The bulk of them are coming from the developing world or the global south, or to put it in a more uh, blunt way from poorer countries. And this pattern has persisted over time. So even though in the scholarship, and I myself have written about this in past years, there has been some move towards what we can call brain circulation, which is that students are not necessarily staying where they go to study. They may go back to their home country. They may go to a third country. The reality is that we still see these large gaps where a great deal of talent leaves the home country and goes to countries like the UK or the US or Australia. It did begin to change a little bit for countries like India and China uh, over the past uh, couple of decades where many more students have gone back after studying in the US than had before. But even so, the numbers are really small. Even today, about according to some of the data out there, almost 80% of all Asian students do immigrate and stay on in the US. So that's a very, very large number. The issue of brain drain is even more pronounced for African countries. And I think that's where it's really severe because for countries like India, there is such a large, again, going back to the demographics, there is such a large youth population that there's talent that's leaving home, but there's immense talent that's staying back. But looking at some African countries, looking at some smaller Caribbean countries, the statistics are the opposite, where actually most of the college-aged cohort that can is leaving the country and never coming back. So it's a true, true deficit in uh, many ways. So I think the brain drain issue is very important. I've dealt with it personally as well. It was sort of part of that that motivated me to even attempt to move back to India but also realizing that the onus also rests with countries on what are they going to do to attract back their talent. And here, I think there are some examples out there, like South Korea has been a leader in this. China has done a much better job at this, where they have proactively created incentives to bring back those of their students who went abroad to study, recognizing that this reverse migration or coming back can have immense value for the country. India, on the other hand, I will say, in my opinion, has not done such a great job of it, certainly not in the not in the years when I attempted my move back, but even, even after. And so 
we've actually not seen that much of a reverse migration back. And where we have seen it is in the corporate sector, the private sector, with you know, in finance or, or high tech, mainly because those companies are multinationals, but not because of large scale initiatives by the governments themselves to realize that they need to bring their people back. So on the last episode, we talked about media representation and we went into some of the ethics behind that. The U.S. has obviously built an amazing infrastructure. It's why my parents came here. It's why many people came here. But you could almost argue that in a way that's allowing it to kind of extract resources from other countries, right? So although you spoke about the countries, the home countries and and kind of their role in this, I'm curious if you feel like there's an ethical obligation for the countries where people are moving to, to kind of support some of the pipeline or like send education back and those types of things? Or do you see this more as a competitive issue where it's purely like, you know, what are countries doing to attract people back on their own? I think receiving countries do have a responsibility as well, but in a slightly different way. I think it's hard to sort of put on an equal footing different education systems because those systems are different in their capacities and students should be given the opportunity to go where they feel they will have the best educational opportunity. So I don't want to take away from that aspiration, but I think where receiving countries have a bigger role to play and a more more ethical role to play is to really have more equal relationships with the higher education sector of other countries. And what I mean by this is that when you look at sort of where this whole field of international students sits, it's sort of within a subfield in higher education in the U.S. called international higher education. And so a large conversation within that domain and of those who sit within it is that how can the U.S. forge more equitable relationships with the rest of the world precisely so that it is not a very colonial approach almost to either extracting talent or simply exporting American viewpoints abroad, but that it is in fact a more mutual collaboration between whether it's academics or researchers or students between different countries. So I think that's where the field really needs to go. That's going to eventually lead to much more global capacity around higher education and then ultimately have the, the the trickle-down impact of students being able to access better opportunities everywhere, including in their home countries. So I think that's where the needle really can be moved. There have been many conversations over the past few years, also in a broader sense, about what is the role of universities as we think about the sustainable development goals? What's the global responsibility of universities? And I think as part of that, it's very much been a strand of discussion about how universities in wealthier countries need to be partnering with their with their peers in uh, less resourced countries, again, to sort of move away from that very neo-colonial model of kind of taking away or simply exporting ideas, but really shifting it to more of an equal footing. These ethical questions are kind of, I always find them so interesting because often they rise out of not malintent, right? Like the U.S. didn't expect to be draining resources, but these things are kind of side effects, unanticipated side effects of a good thing, which is improving the quality of education. One other kind of demographic question that I have for you is when I spoke to people in the UK, like something that's very interesting about their diaspora versus the US diaspora is that US immigration law has really brought over the doctors, the engineers. It's skewed towards a higher socioeconomic status and, and those types of professions. Have you found that over time, at least from an education perspective, we're bringing over more people studying the humanities and those types of subjects from South Asia? Or do you think that the education barriers still skew towards STEM? So I want to start actually by, again, kind of looking at this a little bit historically, where what we sort of see is, quote unquote, the Indian or South Asian model minority myth 
uh, and I know you've touched upon this in some of your previous episodes as well, is really not because we are particularly different or brilliant and, you know, different from any other group, but it's really a creation of U.S. immigration policy of selectivity. And so, again, it was post-1960s when, you know, this next wave of international students from around the world came who were in many ways being cherry-picked as the best and brightest from around the world. But if you look at history going back a couple of centuries, the Indians who had also come to build the railroads, to work in the farmlands going back to the 1800s, a lot of the Sikhs would come across they were a very different demographic, a very working class demographic that's almost been forgotten in the eyes of contemporary America, because what they see is, again, the doctors, the engineers and, you know, all of those other very accomplished professionals. So I just wanted to mention that, that that there are many shades of Indians in the U.S., but we tend to focus on this one, one group. About whether that's changed I don't think it has. The data very clearly points to the fact that most Indian students, most Asian students coming to the U.S. are studying uh, either the STEM fields or business and management, as you probably know from your own experience. And I put this down not so much to the U.S., because I don't think the U.S. has anything to do with it. I mean, students will apply to the programs they want to apply to. And in fact, the U.S. is very strong in the social sciences and the humanities. So I place this sort of on the shoulders, again, of the sending countries and the academic and social culture back home on how different subjects and the careers that they lead to are being viewed. So it's changing, but it's still very much true within the the Indian context back in India that there's a heavy premium placed on careers that derive from the STEM fields and, you know, the sciences and engineering and medicine or being a lawyer or business and management. So again, being seen as, as disciplines that are going to lead to solid, predictable and lucrative careers. So I think that bias is still very much there and therefore reflected in what students choose to study. And I will just share by, you know, as a, as a sort of personal anecdote that when I was an international student, I was the only international student in my entire department. And then I would look over at the engineering school and the opposite would be true, where most of the students were either Indian or Chinese. So I think that the bias uh, is really one that we carry from our homelands and you know the context we're coming from. And I also want to touch on this topic of brain circulation, because I haven't heard that term before. But it's so funny to hear, because when I look within my own family, like my parents when they were immigrating, like the U.S. is what they saw. It was all they saw. They wanted to come here. They wanted to settle down. I'm now in a place where I find other countries interesting. I've thought about potentially moving abroad. Prior to COVID, I had actually applied to a study abroad program. So it's cool to see that, you know, across generations, even we're starting to see some of that brain circulation. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that and just about the phenomena of study abroad. I'm so glad you asked that because I I, I was just thinking back to earlier conversation and when you asked about sort of the responsibility of the receiving countries or the U.S. in this case, I forgot to talk about the study abroad piece. And uh, so first about the brain circulation, absolutely. I think that we are seeing so many new patterns now where many more countries are beginning to attract international students in much larger numbers. And we're not talking about the traditional countries that one thinks of, like the UK or Australia, etc. But many smaller European countries now are attracting international students in large numbers, including American students. And one of the really interesting strategies that they've used, and, you know, one could argue whether that's uh, good or bad, but they're now offering entire degrees taught in English. So it's suddenly and added to the fact that their higher ed degree is extremely affordable, if not entirely free compared to the U.S. So that can be very, very attractive to students. So you're absolutely right that the patterns are really shifting. And I think about those options and choices, even for myself, 
as my daughter starts thinking about college in the future, we actually have conversations about the fact that you don't have to think only about the U.S. I mean, quite literally, the world is your oyster. And, you know, there are many good universities in other countries as, as well, not to mention the really important experience of placing yourself in a different context in learning. So in terms of study abroad, but what does that sort of really mean and how much is that happening? That's where I think it's been a struggle for the U.S. because when we think about the millions of students who are coming to American universities from other countries, we see a real imbalance in Americans going abroad. And currently, only about 10 out of every 100 undergrads, uh, American undergrads will, will have the opportunity to study abroad. And the reason I use the word opportunity and not desire is that studying abroad is an incredibly expensive pursuit for any student anywhere in the world who wants to go abroad. So I think that needs to be acknowledged, that cost is an issue. But even where it's not, students often believe, depending on the group they come from, it's also has a lot to do with sort of perceptions about whether they feel that study abroad is for them or not. So I do think that universities need to and are working to really move the needle there to get more, more students to go abroad. And that is absolutely essential. So again, it ties back to that earlier conversation that it's not just about drawing the world to America, but it is as much about how do Americans need to move out of their comfort zone to learn about uh, the world? And, and, and that's something I talk about, I allude to in the book as well. And culturally, too, I think, at least within my own family, no one had ever asked me about study abroad. So it's very interesting to hear that you're discussing that with your daughter, because at least a generation ago or two generations ago, for many of our families, education, going to school, this was just seen as a tool to get a job as opposed to to develop a global acumen, to go see other parts of the world. So hopefully those discussions start happening more frequently as the world opens up, as we kind of cross generations. So I wanted to shift gears here a little bit. And we've talked about your journey intermittently throughout the podcast, but I wanted to come back to it because you've recently put it down on paper in a book called America Calling. And from my understanding, it seems to be a book that balances your own story, but also with a larger narrative about immigration and education. So can you talk about the process for writing that book? Yeah, sure. So the book that came out mid-September really came out of my own journey as an international student from India, and that being a lived experience for me. But also all of my research and professional work, where, as I, as I said earlier in our conversation, it was very interesting. I'd come to the U.S. as an international student and then many years later found the tables turned where I was now a scholar and an expert studying those very trends and the movement that I had, I had been through, but now from the vantage point of, uh, of an objective uh, observer. And... There was this growing sense that at least in the U.S., in broader society and outside of my immediate field, there is no solid understanding either of who international students are, how large their presence is in U.S. academia, how critical they are in connecting the U.S. to the rest of the world, and the value that they bring to American society in many different ways. So that was becoming clear to me that this is not known outside of sort of the niche area of international higher education. And the second part that's not known is that journey from education to becoming a skilled immigrant. And so I want to back up and say there are many shades to immigrant America and people have different journeys. There's sort of the journey of the skilled immigrant that I document in my book. There's, of course, forced migration, refugees, all sorts of immigrant journeys. But this particular one had really not been broken down into its details and in a very personal way, giving it a human face, because we tend to think of these people as being incredibly successful. 
So that story of struggle that you mentioned earlier, the story of struggle, the story of how dehumanizing it can be, I found had not been told. So it was both of those pieces that I wanted to bring together. So yes, it's a very personal story, but really layered against the history of international students turned immigrants in the U.S., looking at some of the policy issues, looking at issues of growing xenophobia and hate crimes. And I trace that right from the time of 9-11, which was the first time that this happened because there were a lot of misperceptions and misinformation around how many of the terrorists were actually on student visas. Turns out it was only one. And then we saw that sort of die down a bit a few years after 9-11, and then it came to a head again under the previous administration. So those were all the stories that I wanted to tell. But also, you know, there's a note of hope in the book. And in fact, the subtitle to the book is, so the full title is America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility. And the country of possibility phrase actually comes from Kamala Harris's acceptance speech when she won the election as, uh, as vice president. It was a really important moment. I think her election has been a really important turning point, not just, of course, for the Indian-American community in the U.S., but also for international students, because it was then that her story became more widely known, that her mother came as an international student from India, of course, went on to be a cancer researcher, made immense contributions. Her father was an international student from Jamaica. And the same was true for Obama, where his father, the senior Barack Obama, came to the U.S. from Kenya as a foreign student. So, so those are the narratives and stories that I also capture. I've interviewed several individuals for the book, including ambassadors, people like Ambassador Richard Verma, who was uh, the very first person of Indian origin to serve as an ambassador to India under the Obama administration. So yes, there's lots more I could say, but that's sort of why I wrote the book. As an academic, you're probably very used to writing academic material, <laughs> you know, research-based stuff, very hard science-driven things. And I, I know this is your second nonfiction book, but what was it like just kind of reflecting on your own story and putting that down on paper? Did you have to go dig up old materials? Was this all kind of from memory? What, what was that like? So something that my colleagues have not known about me is that I've always written. And I sort of joke about this, and I mentioned this in the book, that, you know, were I not sort of the good, solid Indian pursuing the solid, reliable paths ahead of me, I would probably have continued my interest in writing and journalism and uh, been a full-time writer. So now I, I sort of write on the side, which, trust me, is, is not a, <laughs> a small endeavor. But all of this is to say that I've been writing for many years, then this is apart from my scholarly writing. And writing the personal part was not so difficult as was figuring out how to marry it to this larger research-driven narrative. And so I think that was, from a craft perspective, that was uh, the real challenge. As a writer, I mean, for many years, I've sort of been schooled in sort of those fundamental principles of, and I mainly write creative nonfiction that, you know, you don't tell, you show, and, and, and you know, all of those craft aspects of building a, a great narrative for the average reader. But it was really that how do I, not so much the creative part of it, but how do I take that very dense factual information and make that relatable for the common person and for a more mainstream audience to read the book. So I would say my homework was I must have read and devoured over 100 memoirs written over the past few years, purely from that uh, learning perspective of how other authors are doing this. And I think in recent years, we've actually seen this growth in memoirs that are not just about the very personal story, but the personal story is enabling the telling of a much uh, broader narrative about you know, social or even national issues. We're seeing that 
in every medium, I think even with podcasts, there's a lot more educational content with documentaries. It's almost, uh, I'm forgetting the term for it now, but a mix between entertainment and the traditional documentary format. And before the podcast, we were actually chatting briefly about what it's like to build your creative product, I guess the book, the podcast, but then the complete other side of it, once the product is finished, maybe you can talk a little bit to that. Yes, indeed. And uh, it's something I find myself completely immersed in even now. I mean, I'm about three weeks past the pub date of the book. This is my second book, but so much has changed um, in the nine years when I published my first book, which was published in India. And what's really changed is all of the social media-driven marketing and publicity that now needs to happen around a book. So I would say that for me, writing a book and one that I could stand behind and feel was a quality product was maybe just one third of it or one half of it, if I were to be generous. The rest of it has been all about how am I going to get this book out there into the hands of readers. And so what authors have to do today is immense. I mean, you, you know, and this is with, you know, with the backing of a publisher and a publicist and all of that. But what authors have to do is to really become sort of <laughs> promotion machines for their books. And, you know, there's so much that one could be doing. And so I, I've surprised myself at the sorts of things I've mastered uh, this year. But what I will also say that's been a takeaway for me is there's so much that an author could be doing in sort of this whole panoply of, you know, social media and different strategies and approaches. But you really have to also pick and choose. I mean, unless you've got an army of people working with you on this, you've really got to make choices about what works for you and where are you going to focus your energy. So like what we were talking about right before, I love podcasts. I am an avid listener to podcasts. I love appearing on podcasts. I thought for a long time before my book came out whether I should launch my own podcast and I decided not to. And it was not an easy decision, but I instead chose to focus on launching an email newsletter because I felt that at that point, that was the right thing for me to build up a readership and to be able to talk on a frequent basis on issues that I cared about and building upon my book. So I think those are choices to make. So I have not joined Clubhouse this year, although everybody said to me, I need to get on Clubhouse. I mean, for me, just getting on Instagram was big enough. My sort of go-to social media platform, uh, which has really worked for this book as well, because the book straddles both the personal and the professional, has been LinkedIn, where I'm very active. And then, of course, you know, other platforms as well. So that's sort of what I would say about that. Amazing. Well, I hope that this podcast gets your book into the hands of a few more people. I am super excited for my copy to arrive. So with that, Rajika, I'm just going to ask you one last question, which is where can people find you and the book? I have a website in my name. It's uh, com. So everything about my book, about my speaking engagements, my writings is um, right on there, as well as links on how to get the book. I'll just say, as they say, you know, you can get it wherever fine books are sold. So that includes, of course, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all of the standard outlets, also bookshop.org, which is a great place if you like to support independent booksellers and like to get your books uh, from there. So yeah, but my website would be the ideal um, starting point. Great. And I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. So thank you for coming on today and sharing a little bit of your work. Thank you so much, Suraj. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guests. If you want to support the show, share this episode with a friend or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.